So we are uh, looking at Acts chapter 2 this evening. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together we have this evening. We're thankful for the grace of God that's given to us in Christ. Think of our brother Vince, Stephanie, and the death of their Vince's father. We pray you'll comfort Vince and his family during this time and pray you'll help us to be an encouragement as we can. Thank you for the opportunity to study the Word of God together this evening. We pray you the Holy Spirit will illuminate our, illuminate our hearts and minds to the truth of God's Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We, uh, last time we were uh, looking at chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. We're still dealing with sort of these foundational elements, you might say. These are things that that Luke is set in place, setting in place, and God is setting in place. Uh, and then we'll see the actual beginning of the Great Commission going forth to Jerusalem, then Samaria, ultimately to the capital city of Rome itself. Um, as the gospel goes forth, the church goes forward. Um, we were talking last time about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We talked about the two types of filling, the ordinary filling, the special filling. We dealt with that some. And uh, we were looking on uh, the day of Pentecost. They spoke in languages. We said these tongues are actually human languages, uh, not some sort of non-cognitive, non-language, just sort of syllables that are uttered with no particular meaning. These had meaning. And there were people there on the day of Pentecost, we noticed in verse 8, from all over the parts of the world, from uh, the then-known world, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, so forth. We noticed that these were... uh, people who had moved back to Jerusalem uh, in order to uh, live in Jerusalem, to die in Jerusalem, be buried in Jerusalem, uh, and they were there, and of course they would speak their own native language, that they, the country they came from. Uh, he mentions that, he said that, um, he, he says in verse 11, um, let me see if I can find here verse 11 um, Cretans and Arabs we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language so the apostles were speaking in these languages not the gospel per se probably it says the wonders of God uh, so these were probably praising God saying uh, things like uh, Psalms maybe Not the gospel per se. Peter gets up immediately in verse 14, stands up and gives the gospel in Aramaic and Hebrew Aramaic there so that people can understand. But this is simply praising God, probably using Old Testament scripture possibly so that people recognize this, they know what's going on. Um, We said this was a miracle of speaking, speaking these tongues, not just hearing them and so forth, declaring the wonders of God. Now, there's a couple of reactions here. It says, uh, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another in verse 12, what does this mean? They're amazed because they hear these people speaking in their own tongues, their own languages. How could this possibly be possible? How could these people know these languages? But there's another group that says, some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. These probably who said, who were making fun of them and said they've had too much wine were probably local Jews who wouldn't have understood these languages at all. In other words, these were... You've got the beginning here, right here in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of something that we'll see carried through, especially when we get to Acts chapter 6. That is, these division between the Jews. And these local Jews, people who grew up in Jerusalem 
who had that culture, spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, and then Jews who had come from the diaspora. Remember, we use that word diaspora, which means the dispersion. Jews had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire in different parts. They had come back, and those Jews form a separate group. We see them in Acts chapter 6. They're called the, the Grecian-speaking or the Hellenistic Jews. And then we see the Hebraic Jews, and that, that's where the thing about the deacons comes in and dispute about. So this division among this people we see right here. So some of these people, the local ones, they don't understand these languages, and they tend to say, you're sort of out of your mind. This is what Paul says, remember, to the Corinthians when he's, when he's sort of castigating them for speaking in tongues with no translator. Remember he says in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 23... He says, so if the whole church comes together, 1 Corinthians 14, 23, and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say you're out of your mind? Because they won't understand what you're saying. They'll be just like these people. What is this? What, is these, what, are, these, what are these people saying? What's going on here? They're, I don't understand any of this. So the people who understood their language were amazed, but others... Uh, were perplexed by this and made fun of it and so forth and tried to come up with an explanation of what's going on here. That leads us to page 11, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Now, we, uh, we said that it's difficult to know exactly where all this is taking place at. Uh, it said they were in the room. And I wish I knew to this day. I've been studying this book for many years. And, and if you read the commentaries, I looked at, again at a bunch of commentaries this week to see. And most people just don't comment on this because it talks about being in the room. And we said that could refer to the temple, but it might refer to some upper room or room where they're at. We know eventually they seem to be in the temple area. They seem to be in this Solomon's colonnade, you remember, that we talked about eventually. That's a map on the diaspora. And there they come from various places. There's the two types of Jews I was talking about, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews, uh, those who come from the diaspora. Greek would have been their normal language, those who come, who are born in the Holy Land, born in Palestine, born in Jerusalem, would speak Hebrew Aramaic. And uh, so... Um, um, Peter gets up and speaks here... Uh, Peter stands up with the 11. We don't know exactly where they're at. We, some people say, okay, they were in the upper room, and then Peter goes outside the room into the street and begins to talk to people there. It's very difficult to know exactly in Jerusalem. It's, Luke doesn't tell us clearly where they're at here in Jerusalem. But eventually we see, we see that things kind of move to the temple area. So they may have been near the temple even now. So here's Peter's sermon at uh, Pentecost, beginning in verse 14. First, in verses 14 through 21, we see a defense of the Pentecost phenomenon. Peter's going to explain what's going on here. And what is this about? What are all these signs, these tongues, these miracles? What, what, what's going on here? So Peter stands up. Some say maybe to refute the charge of drunkenness, possibly. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and answered the crowd. And he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, there's a lot of debate about exactly what's going on here when he quotes the prophecy of Joel. He quotes here Joel chapter 2. And he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I take this, and many take this to mean, this is what? This, it literally, the Greek says, this is that. Many of us take it to mean something like, this is like that. This is just like the kind of thing that Joel was talking about. It doesn't look like that the Pentecost is a fulfillment of Joel 2 exactly. That what Joel 2 talks about is not exactly fulfilled here. It's similar to Joel 2, now, why do I say that? Well, look what he's, look what he's pushed from Joel 2. In the last days, 
What are the last days? Uh, as I say here, the expression last days marks the beginning of the Messianic age, which will end at the second advent. So if you took a look at all those scriptures about the last days, Paul says in the last days men will be lovers themselves. If you look at all those last days expression, Hebrews 1, 2, you know, Jesus has spoken to us now in the last days. God has spoken to us through his son in the last days. So the last days, the scriptural term, the last days, commences with Christ, with the coming of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. And that begins the church age and that ends at his second advent. That's what I'm trying to show by those particular scriptures there. We took time to... Uh, to look at them. Maybe I actually, no, I don't have a slide there. Um, but Peter says, uh, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Well, as far as you know, there's no dream, dream dreaming going on here. There's no dreaming going on at Pentecost, right? It just says they spoke in tongues here. It doesn't say anybody dreamed dreams. Even on my service, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, at Pentecost, the moon didn't turn to blood. It didn't turn red. The sun didn't become dark, and none of that happened on the day of Pentecost. So... Luke, uh, Joel is talking about a time that the book of Revelation talks about with the second coming of Christ and so forth, the last days. These things will happen. So I think Peter is saying when he says this is what was spoken, the word what is, this is that, this is like that. Peter says, don't be so upset by what you see here. You shouldn't be surprised because the Bible talked about this sort of thing. Joel talked about people prophesying and these kind of miraculous things, dreams and visions. He talks about this kind of thing. So what you see here on the day of Pentecost is unusual, obviously. It's, you don't see that every day, right? But it's not out of, out of the question of what the Old Testament talks about. So he quotes Joel 2 as sort of evidence that this, kind of phenomenon is something that God talked about even in the Old Testament. Well, the after he quotes the Joel passage, beginning in verse 2, we see a proclamation of the apostolic message. Here is his sermon or message, and uh, here's the proposition, or here's the take-home truth, you know, as our pastor likes to say. Uh, the take-home truth is Jesus is the Messiah and Lord. It actually comes down in verse 36. So we'll just jump ahead to the end, to the end of the sermon and get the take-home truth here. It says, Therefore let all Israel be assured that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's what he wants to prove. Now we'll talk about what that means, Lord and Messiah here, in a moment. But that's, what he's, that's the proposition or the theme or the central idea. And he has three proofs of that. Three proofs, like any good sermon, three points, right? Three proofs. First of all, his work on earth, he says. Fellow Israelites, verse 22, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. <coughs> so here's the message. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Lord. And we start the proof of that by his work here on earth. He came to earth. He did these miracles. He did wonders. He did signs. These are the three terms in Greek for miracles. Greek has three terms. One is miracles. It's kind of the way the NIV translates it. <laughs> the normal word, it means powerful things. And wonders are things that cause you to wonder. And signs are exactly that. Sometimes they're called sign miracles. They have a sign value. So he says, Jesus did all these kinds of things. Remember, John's gospel is built around seven sign miracles, seven miracles that Jesus did to attest who he is. And so that's the purpose, really, of miracles. Miracles are primarily, they appear on the pages of Scripture, primarily 
to accredit the message or the messenger. The reason people did miracles primarily, why did Moses do those miracles? I mean, we go through all that history. We come to Moses, 1400, you know, 46 B.C. So we go through all that time. We don't see many miracles. I mean, we've seen, you know, the translation, we've seen a few things, but we don't see miracles during the time of Abraham, you know, too much. We we see miracles, they're just rarely on the pages of Scripture. But suddenly Moses comes on the scene and he starts doing these miracles to attest he is God's spokesman. He is who he says he is. And Jesus comes on the scene and he does these miracles not primarily because people need to be healed. There's a lot of people that need to be healed. Jesus didn't heal everybody. He healed some people. And he did a lot of miracles to attest who he is. That's the point of miracles. In fact, Paul even says that himself. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending himself to the Corinthians. There's some question about his, there's false teachers who've come in the church in 2 Corinthians. And they're questioning Paul's apostleship. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, has to, in 10 through 12 especially, he has to defend his apostleship, but he makes an interesting statement. He says in verse 11, I have made a fool of myself. Well, what he's talking about is, I've had to kind of lay out my credentials and tell you who I am and boast, and I don't like boasting. I don't like this. He says, I was caught up into the third heaven, and I saw things I can't even tell you, but I don't like this. It's, it's kind of foolish for me to have to say these things. But you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I'm not in any least inferior to the, and the, the NIV has italics, or quotation marks, super apostles, even though I'm nothing. So Paul is saying, listen, these false apostles who come in, they're nothing, you know, I, and then what he says, verse 12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. And what are those? including signs, wonders, and miracles. So part of the marks of a true apostle were signs and wonders and miracles. Signs and wonders and miracles are not the, not, not the mark of Bill Combs. They're not the, part, they're, not the, they're not the mark of Ken Rapp. They're not the mark of the average Christian. They're the mark of God's authoritative spokesman. I'm not an authoritative spokesman for God. I'm just a preacher of the word. I'm just telling you what the word says. I'm not, I don't have any special prophetic abilities or gifts or anything like that. And that's it, you know. We're just giving the word. We're not authoritative spokesmen like Moses and Jesus and the Apostle Paul and so forth. There's no apostles today. So we don't need anybody. We've got the word of God finished for us in that sense. So Peter says, first of all, the first proof that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord is his work on earth. He did these wonderful miracles. These were attestation, attestation of who he was. That's why he primarily did them. Second, his resurrection. Verses 23 through 32. He says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I guess we could have a, a rabbit trail here. Remember, this is that famous verse that points out, it's often used to talk about the sovereign plan of God and yet the responsibility of men. You remember? Our pastor, if you've been in the Discovering God at Hour, has been talking about the will of God. And here's that verse on the sovereign will of God. Remember, there's two kinds of wills. The word will is used in two ways. God's sovereign will, or God's decree, or God's plan, or God's desired will, God's moral will, what God desires. And so the sovereign will of God includes everything that happens. Nothing is outside of God's control. God is not surprised by anything that happens. And that sovereign will even includes the wicked things that people do, though God is not responsible for those wicked things. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Jesus going to the cross wasn't some sort of thing that that surprised God. No, it was God's plan and purpose for his son to do this. But you're still responsible in a way that we don't fully comprehend the 
sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So people are responsible. They did these evil things, but it was all part of God's ultimate plan. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. So, um, his second proof is the resurrection. He says, Fellow Israelites, verse 29, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. So how could Jesus be the Messiah since he was executed as a criminal? He was executed on the cross. He was handed over, but he was executed. And he died. He really died. How could he be the Messiah? Well, he quotes here, Peter quotes Psalm 16. If you have your, you know, a reference in your Bible, let's say Psalm 16, 8 through 11. That's what I read. I saw the Lord always before me. He's quoting Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And this shows, this Psalm shows, talking about David, and now we're, now we're talking about David's greater son, Jesus Christ. It shows that the Messiah's death was part of God's plan and predicted in the Old Testament since it speaks of his resurrection when it talks about you will not let your Holy One see decay. Fellow Israelites, verse 29, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. So in, in Peter's day, they knew exactly where David's tomb was. We saw on those slides, remember we talked about where is David's tomb at? Is it probably in Mount Zion uh, in the old city there? But he was a prophet. David was. Now David wasn't really a prophet, but he was a prophet. How's that? Well, he, he didn't have the prophetic office. You know, he didn't have the prophetic office. He wasn't like Jeremiah or Isaiah, a prophetic office. But he was a prophet in the sense that he gave truth. He gave scripture. In fact, the Jews, uh, they consider anyone who gave scripture a prophet. Moses is called a prophet. David's called a prophet because he wrote scripture or gave scripture. He wasn't prophetic prophet in the sense of the prophetic office but he says he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on an oath that he should place one of his descendants on his throne seeing what was to come he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead nor did his body see decay God has raised this Jesus to life and you are witnesses of it so, Jesus was executed as a criminal, but his this was all part of God's plan that he die for the sins, for sin, you know. And the Old Testament, he says, even predicted, David did, that he would rise from the dead. And so his resurrection proves who he was. It proves he was the Messiah. Because the, the death of the Messiah is not a tragedy as you might think. Remember, this is something that was not clearly seen. Uh, David, Peter says it was. Remember, they were the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come, right? Set up his kingdom throughout the Romans and so forth. And Jesus was a disappointment in that sense, wasn't he? He didn't set up his kingdom right then. They, he announced the kingdom. They rejected the king. And he went to the cross and died and so forth. Now, he's coming back one day and he'll set up that kingdom here on earth, that thousand-year reign. But how could the Messiah be executed? Well, he this was predicted in the Old Testament that he would be executed, that he would die, that he would be raised again, and this is proof. And then the third proof, he says here in verses 33 through 36, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Exalted to the right hand of God, verse 33, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, 
Set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now he's quoting here Psalm 110 verse 1. And this is an interesting psalm because David says in this psalm, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the Lord is saying to my Lord, the Lord God Jehovah, Yahweh, is saying to my Lord, the Messiah. If you notice in your, if you're in your Bible there, notice the word Lord is spelled differently. See how this is spelled L-O-R-D. But notice it's, it's uh, in mine. No, it's not. Is it yours or not? No, it's, it's, it's not in mine. In if we look back at Psalm 110, verse 1, let me look at uh, where he's quoting. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord. Um, so, in Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord... says to it actually says in the NIV Lord and so these are actually two different Hebrew words this is this word for Yahweh sometimes translated Jehovah and this is just a normal word for Lord and so the Lord God the Father is saying to David's Lord so the Lord is saying to David's Lord. That's kind of a, a strange uh, thing, isn't it? A little strange there. Remember, this caused problems, or Jesus brought this up during his earthly ministry, this psalm. In Matthew chapter 22, 41, um, Jesus used this passage to sort of confound his enemies here. In Matthew 22... Uh, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Matthew twenty two forty one, Jesus asked them, so Jesus is asking the Pharisees a question, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said, okay, the son of David, they replied. Everybody knows the Messiah is the son of David. And he said to them, Jesus says to these Pharisees, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, put, until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus says to these people, how is it that David calls the Messiah Lord? See, that's what's happening in Psalm 110 verse 1 and happening here in, we're quoting in Acts 2. The Lord... God the Father says to my Lord, says to the Messiah, you know, set here and I'll make I'll make your enemies a footstool. How, how how is it that David could call his own son Lord? Now, of course, we know how that is, don't we? Because David's son, Jesus, is ultimately more than just a man. He's the God man, isn't he? He's uh, he is David's descendant physically fleshly as far as his humanity is concerned isn't he but he's also the logos incarnate the the human and divine together so my point here is that um, at the outpouring of the holy spirit here in acts chapter 2 um, peter says he has poured out his spirit and you see that now because david didn't send in ascend into heaven David said, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Who was it who ascended into heaven? It was David's son, but it was the Messiah, the second Lord here. The Lord God, the Father, said to my Lord. And so he's the one who ascended into heaven, and he's waiting there until his enemies are made a footstool. Therefore, he has this conclusion, 
So according to Psalm 110.1, the Messiah, David's Lord, is at God's right hand, a position of honor and authority. Therefore, verse 36, let all Israel be assured that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. So he is both Lord and Messiah. Now, what he's saying here is the Messiah has been exalted. He's in heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, a place of honor. So he's been given this sort of exalted position. Now, he always was, he always was the Son of God. He's eternally the Son of God. But remember, he came to earth, took the position, place of a servant, and now he's been exalted back to the right hand. The gospel writers talk, I mean, the, the, the epistles talk a lot about this. Paul talks a lot about this. Let me read a section in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, because it complements exactly what we're talking about here. Romans chapter 1, this is Paul writing to the church at Rome, and he says, he says, let me read verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Here it is, verse 3. The gospel regarding his son. So the gospel is about the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what does Paul say? Who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David. So he came to earth. He was incarnate, a descendant of David. And who the Spirit, through the Spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is kind of a difficult passage here because Paul says, He was a descendant of David. The Son was, the Son came to earth, a descendant of David. And he was appointed the Son of God in power. Well, he's already the Son of God. What, what do you mean he's a, what do you mean he's appointed the Son of God in power? Well, it's that phrase in power. So, he's the Son of God, he comes to earth, takes this lowly position, he dies, and then God exalts him to this powerful position at his right hand, a place of authority. And so Paul says, appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, and then here's how he concludes it. Jesus Christ our Lord. It's, it's sort of exactly what Peter is saying here when he says Messiah and Lord. Now this is, this is exactly what Paul says over in Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2, this well-known passage, you remember, talking about the humiliation of Christ. Remember he says in verse 5, Philippians 2, 5, And your relationship with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. So he was God, God the Son, and eternity with God the Father and the Holy Spirit who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him, that's what we're talking about right now, to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see? So that's what Peter is talking about here when he says, um, let all Israel be assured that he has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the Lord of the universe. He is this, in this exalted position. So he's given the sermon. It's a proclamation that this Jesus whom you unfortunately crucified, put to death, is really the Messiah, and he's also Lord. So he has this, verse 37, a call to repentance and a promise of blessing. He calls now for them to repent. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. There's real conviction of sin, isn't it? Mm -hmm. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
verse 37. So, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now he says, I want you to repent and be baptized. Now I said here in the notes here, when Paul when he says repent, that includes faith. You know, we say, what does a person have to do to be saved? What are the conditions? What what are what are the steps? What are what are the what are the steps in conversion? We usually say it's repentance and faith. We don't try to separate those too much. You know, we sometimes say they're two sides of a coin. We say you turn from sin and you turn to God. And you, you do that at one time. You do that instantaneously, as a matter of fact. Now, it may, it may be a process. You know, you many of us who are saved go through a process. It takes a long time. But at the moment when we are born again, we, we repent, we turn. We say, I'm turning from that, and we turn to God in faith. We trust God. And I, I say in the notes, in some context, either repentance or faith alone is sufficient for salvation, like here. When Peter says repent and be baptized, he doesn't mean you don't have to have faith. That's what I'm trying to say. Even though he says repent, included in that is the idea of faith. True saving faith is a repentant faith. It's a faith that turns from sin, turns to God. And so I was uh, just showing some verses here where Faith alone, sometimes, either repentance or faith alone is sufficient. So, you know, Mark 21, 32. For John came to show you the way of righteousness. You didn't believe him, Jesus says, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. Even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So there's repent and believe. Um... Mark 1, 5, the time has come, the kingdom of repent and believe the good news. God in uh, verse 20, 21, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they may turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So sometimes um, you have both, sometimes you just have one. I'll tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven, Jesus says, over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who don't need to. Luke 24, 47. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins shall be preached in his name to all nations, Jesus says. Well, yeah, repentance, but it's a repentant faith. Acts 17, 30. In time past, Paul says, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. <clears throat> Or sometimes, so sometimes just repentance is given as the condition for salvation. But it doesn't mean it doesn't include faith. Sometimes it just says faith. Remember Acts 16, 31? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The, the jailer says, what can, I, what can I do to be saved? What must I do? And Paul doesn't say, repent and believe, you see. <laughs> but he just says believe. But don't think that doesn't include turning. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. But that faith is a repentant kind of faith. So I'm just trying to show here that sometimes the scripture will talk about you need to repent to be saved. Sometimes it'll talk about you need to believe to be saved. Sometimes it'll say you need to repent and believe. We have to look at them all together. And we know that both are technically required. And they're not really two separate acts. It's not that we repent and then... Sometime later we believe we, we have a repentant faith at the same time when we are regenerated. So uh, the problem, however, is this verse that says, uh, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's a problem because some people believe in what's called I call baptismal regeneration here. That baptism itself conveys spiritual life. Some people believe, Roman Catholics believe, and some uh, Church of Christ, Christian Church believe that 
baptism is essential to bring about that spiritual life. And they would use a verse like this, where Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you. Now, one way we can we know that's not true is because we can look at all those other verses we looked at. <laughs> we looked at a bunch of other verses, and those verses, when the Philippian jailer asked Paul, you know, what, what must I do to be saved? He didn't say, believe and be baptized, and you'll be saved. He didn't, he didn't tell him that, did he? He didn't give him that information at all. Uh, so there are many verses, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith and baptism. No, Paul didn't throw baptism there. He just said faith. So uh, there are many verses that just speak of faith or repentance and faith. They don't speak of baptism. This one seems to, granted. Uh, this one seems to speak of that. Now later we'll get to, you know, verses that are passages that seem to demonstrate this very clearly. Later we'll get to, in Acts chapter 10, the case of Cornelius. Do you remember the case of Cornelius, the Roman centurion in Acts chapter 10, who is saved? He, Peter comes to his house, and Peter presents the gospel to him, um, and uh, Peter begins to speak and so forth. And it says in verse 44 of chapter 10, Acts 10, 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, he's giving the gospel, talking about the death of Jesus and so forth. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. So, you know, here's Cornelius. He hears the message of the gospel. He receives the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says, we're going to baptize this one here. So we have many instances like this where people repent and believe. They are said to be saved, regenerated, receive the Holy Spirit. You know, we think of the thief on the cross, obviously, who, who uh, was not baptized. Now, when I used to live in Chattanooga... The Church of Christ there was very strong. They, they called the Church of Christ very strong there, and they believed in baptism or regeneration. And so other Christians were constantly debating them. I remember they had a TV program, and the preachers would be on there, and people would call in questions, and all these students would call in the college where I was at and try to trick these guys, you know, on the baptism or regeneration. But I remember somebody called in and said, well, what about the thief on the cross? Well, he was probably baptized before. <clears throat> Yeah, he was he was baptized before, you know. So it's it's a problem. But it's not that they don't have a verse here. Here's a verse that says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um probably what's uh it what's going on here is that baptism is being cl closely associated with the conversion experience. It's, it's very possible here that the word, even the word uh, for here, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins means something like with a view to. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ with a view to the forgiveness of sins or on the basis of the forgiveness of sins. Many Greek scholars argue that that's how we should translate. That's what the word for means here. The Greek preposition means with a view to. The point is, no matter what others may say, we, we don't want to just take one verse and say, okay, this verse proves baptismal regeneration. We want to look at the whole of Scripture, and it's very clear that baptism, though it's something we do in obedience to our faith in Christ, and we should do, and we're commanded to do. Jesus gave that great commission and says to baptize, you know, all everyone, but it's not part of the gospel. It doesn't regenerate in itself. It's only something that we do to symbolize the conversion experience. Romans chapter 6, it, we, we symbolize that experience. 
So he says, be baptized in the name. Be baptized uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. I mentioned this is probably not a baptismal formula. We have the baptismal formula given in the Great Commission. Baptizing them, Jesus said, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the name of probably means something on the authority of. Remember the word named, if we say a person has a good name. It doesn't mean B-I-L-L is a good name. It's better than other names. It just means he's got a good reputation. Or I'm doing this based on his name. Or So name means authority. So here it's what it, that's what it means. I want you to be baptized based on the authority of Jesus Christ. And so with these words, verse 40, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, sometimes people will say, uh, that's pretty difficult. How could you baptize 3,000 people in Jerusalem? And uh, it does seem, it, it, it used to seem quite unlikely. You don't hear this argument too much anymore. I mentioned something here called a mikvah. I say there were numerous mikvahs around Jerusalem, especially in the temple area that could have been used for baptisms. What is this? This is a mikvah. Jews had to wash themselves. They had to cleanse themselves uh, before they went into the temple area, especially. You had to, you know, if you were ceremonial unclean for anything, you had to wash yourselves. And so what you find is these mikvahs, they're like this, they're like steps. And so you, you walk down into these steps, and then you have water kind of that comes up to about right there. And you walk down and you kind of immerse yourself fully, completely. And this is one of the many mikvahs. Now, you know, I went to Jerusalem. I went to Israel in 2000. I saw some mikvahs there, but I kind of, I've read stuff since then, in the last 15 years. And one of the things that's always interesting is the discoveries of mikvahs. There was just one the other day. They, they discover them all around the temple area because the Jews are excavating around the temple area. Remember, they can't get on the temple mount, but they can excavate around the temple area. And one of the things they discover is these mikvahs. This is one right there in the Jerusalem area. Now, what this was right here is a handrail, a kind of a stone rail. And so what you do is you go in dirty one way, you cleanse yourself, and you walk out the other way. You don't touch the other people as you're coming out. But there's bunches of these around the temple area that they've discovered. It's just amazing how many they're finding. So there are lots of places where these people could have been immersed because of all these mikvahs around the temple area. Well, that brings us to the first major section, the Christian mission to the Jewish world, 242 to 1224. The Christian mission to the Jewish world. Then chapter 13, the end of chapter 12, chapter 13 is the Jewish mission to the Gentile world, mainly the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. First thing we see here is the earliest days of the church of Jerusalem, 242 through 67. Then we'll branch out, remember, to Samaria and then Caesarea with Cornelius and so forth like that. We have, first of all, a thesis paragraph or a statement paragraph, a summary paragraph on the state of the early church. What was the early church doing? Um, we have that in Acts 2, 42 through 47. They, that is, this early believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Remember Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching. I want you to teach them, baptizing and teach them. So here's the apostles' teaching. It's this teaching that ultimately becomes the New Testament as we have it today. The apostles' teaching to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Uh, this fellowship is, this word our pastors mentioned, koinonia, memories mentioned a few times, 
sharing. So they were sharing things in common here. The breaking of bread. This might be the Lord's Supper. Many people think it is because it, it actually has an article that says the breaking of bread. And many think that's the breaking of bread in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. It's hard to tell because, remember, in the early church, the Lord's Supper was always celebrated in conjunction with a meal. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, they're having a meal. The Corinthians are having a meal, just like Jesus did at the last, when he instituted the Lord's Supper at the, you know, before his death. They were having a meal, and then in the midst of the meal, they instituted the Lord's Supper there. So uh, it's difficult to tell. It could be here. Many think this is the Lord's Supper and to prayer. So, uh, verse uh, 43, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, this is going to be demonstrated in chapter 3. Remember, this is a thesis paragraph, a summary paragraph, an explanatory paragraph. Many uh, wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. Well, chapter 3, verse 1 we have the very first one. Peter and John go up to the temple and they heal this lame man who had been lame from birth. There's the, so what we'll have is this is the summary or thesis paragraph and then we'll have examples to follow in chapter 3 and following. So we're just getting the, the basis here, the summary of what was going on and then we'll get the, the uh, examples in chapter 3 and following. Verse 44, uh, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to every, anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and joined the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the question is, comes up here is in verse 44 and verse 45. They had things in common. They sold the property, possessions given. They sold the property, possessions to give to anyone who had need. I'll make a few comments here. First of all, I'll say this is not compulsory. I mean, many people will look at this, especially non-believers, and say, oh, this is the first instance of communism. You know, communism is a governmental imposed system. You don't have any choice. You don't, you don't own anything. You, you don't have any private property in a communist system. This is not the same thing. This is voluntary. As I say in Acts chapter 5, or as Peter says in Acts chapter 5, you remember the case in Acts chapter 5? We'll get there. Of Ananias and Sapphira. Mm -hmm. And you remember how they sold some land and so forth and held back part of the money. They sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge... Verse 2, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. I mean, apparently, he said, I sold this land for $10,000 and I'm giving you the entire amount of money. The truth is, he sold it for 20000 you know, and kept back part of it. So, it was okay. He didn't have to give any of them. That's what Peter says in verse 3. Remember, Ananias, how Satan filled your heart. But he says in verse 3 here, You've lied to the Spirit. You've kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you, verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? His sin was not that he didn't give all the money. His sin was he lied about it. His sin, he sold the land for $20,000. He could have kept it all, Peter says. It was yours at your disposal. It wasn't that he he could have said, I sold it for $20,000, I'm giving you ten. No, but he sold it for twenty. He said he sold it for ten. You have to know the Greek to know these amounts here, the ten thousand, twenty thousand. You know that's what's happened here. He has lied about it. He has said he's giving more. He's giving the total amount, and he didn't give it. So his sin was lying here. It wasn't that he didn't give up all his property. It wasn't compulsory. Peter says, after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't that you had to do this. It wasn't compulsory. As I say here, apparently things were sold as there was a need. 
What precipitates this Ananias and Sapphira situation is Barnabas before them. It says in Acts chapter 4, there was no needy persons among them, verse 34, Acts 4.34. For from time to time, verse 34, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So from time to time, people sold this land and put it at the apostles' feet. It wasn't required. It wasn't compulsory. Barnabas sold only a field, I mentioned here. Now, it's, not, it's, it's unclear exactly why they are having this, this uh, everything in common. It's not exactly clear because we don't see it as a pattern in the rest of the New Testament. It wasn't true in Corinth. It wasn't true in Philippi as far as we know. It wasn't true in Ephesus. It wasn't true in these apostolic churches. So it's unclear. It may have been persecution, possibly, although it says they had favor, some, some people feel they were, there were economic difficult times. We know there were economic difficult times, which may have caused them to band together. Uh, could have been certain sanctions on them by outsiders, by Jews. We don't know for sure why they did this. But this is not communism. This is a voluntarily banding together to help people who have needs. And it says they're meeting together in the temple courts verse 46 and we talked about here's the temple courts are this area here including Solomon's colonnade and all this area out here this is the temple proper here here's the temple proper and all this is temple courts so these were public meetings anybody could go up into the temple courts even Gentiles could go into the temple courts but they couldn't go into the temple proper only Jews could go into the temple park uh, proper um, so uh, we see them we see throughout the book of Acts that they're meeting in these temple courts or the temple mount the temple area here is uh, something they're constantly meeting in uh, we see references that I cite some of them here like chapter 3 verse 11 while the man held on to Peter and John all the people were astonishing and came running into them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade there's a mention of Solomon's colonnade right here in chapter 3 and verse 11, chapter 5, 12, and so forth. So this is a little difficult because we'll have to figure this out as we go along here, but what in the world are these Christians going to the temple for? Can you tell me that? Why are they going to the temple? Jesus has died. He's made the perfect sacrifice for sins. Those Old Testament sacrifices could never take away sin anyway, right? Haven't they read the book of Hebrews? Right? Well, no, they didn't have the book of Hebrews yet. See? <laughs> so we're in a transitional phase here, aren't we? These are Jews who have gone to the temple all their life. Jesus met here in the temple courts. And so there's a transition here, transition, transitioning from Judaism away from the temple and the sacrificial system of the temple, it doesn't really go away completely until AD 70 that the temple's destroyed. But it's not immediately clear. I mean, it seems clear to us. We think, well, okay, Jesus died. His death is sufficient for us. You know, why would you be offering these sacrifices and so forth? Well, remember, they're going to have sacrifices again in the millennium too in the, in the, new, in the new temple that's going to be built and so forth. These will be mainly memorial sacrifices of Jesus' death and so forth. So um, it wasn't perfectly clear to people yet. It took time to see, okay, we've entered a new dispensation. We're in the church age. We're not tied to Judaism. We're not tied to the sacrificial system anywhere. It's going to take a while because these people are still going to the temple, still engaging in worship there at the temple, even though they believe in Jesus, <laughs> his death and resurrection. They believe he's the Messiah. They're trusting him for salvation and so forth. They don't know, they don't have the book of Hebrews, and they don't know, that because they see the Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about the sacrificial system, doesn't it? And offering sacrifices, morning and evening and all that. So it's going to take time for this to be worked out. The Apostle Paul is going to have to write his epistles, and we're going to have to get revelation from God. God didn't just dump it on them the first day and say, now, don't go to the temple anymore, and here's, what, here's, here's what's going on. It's going to take a little time. 
And so we'll see how that unfolds here in the book of Acts as more truth comes out and we begin to realize. The first man to really realize this is Stephen. Stephen realizes that, hey, if Jesus died, he's the Messiah and all that, he's the important person, and the temple and all this other stuff is not that important. It's not all that important. And what did they do to Stephen? They stoned him. (laughs) So it's not an easy lesson to learn here. We'll see. It's going to take some time for the Jews to understand exactly the place of Jesus and these temple and these sacrifices and so forth. But we'll hold that for next time. All right. Thank you very much.